guy. And we're sitting in Guy's sitting room and we're enjoying the fire, which is currently smoking the room out as we succumb to the carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, you can't commit suicide with a, with a, uh, with a log fire. But you can. Trust me, I would have been in this room. It's been so smoky. Look at, look at the soot all over the ceiling. What do you think uh, uh, performance-enhancing drugs are for the podcaster? Uh, ego, 30 milligrams. Uh, Shamelessness, 50 milligrams. I think it's a bit tough the way they're so Cheers. hard. Alcohol, of course. The way they're so hard on uh, people using the athletes using drugs. Yeah. Because no one ever says you shouldn't have that artist at the Tate Modern. He used drugs. Oh, what about Jimi Hendrix? Right. Or what about William Burroughs? Yeah. What it's the like, fuck exactly? Man, man, it's, it's, a, it's a totally. It's an unfair performance. It's ridiculous. If you want to do that, from the records. If you're prepared to go that far. Why should it be different for athletes? Well, exactly. You're still going to be good. If you think about it, if they let everybody take drugs, the best ones would still come through, wouldn't they? That I don't know. It would be quite good to say sort of 17 stone lardars winning, <laughs> winning the 100 metres the, just on drugs. The 15th... <laughs> and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 15th Cocaine Olympics. <laughs> this year we've got some real contenders. For weeks now, we've been hearing the sound of the vehicles coming in, bringing in the, the material that's needed for the long jump. And they dive into a huge pit of coke. Of coke. Yeah. But seriously, it would. So many sports are now tainted by the allegations of, of, of drug use, and it's really clouding the fun of them. Bicycling, obviously, cycling, as they call it. And uh, you just think it would be make it a lot easier if you just said, we don't care how you do it. Just we're just on the day. Who, which can who can get faster from? That's point very out much to point the Russian point. perspective, guy. Mm. But at least not have any hypocrisy about it. What I think they've got a special Olympics already. Have like a an enhanced Olympics where if you want, you can have drugs to modify your performance, or you can become a cyborg, for instance. Yeah, there's basically no rules. No holds barred Olympics. Mm. See, if you want, you can have mechanical legs. You can kill your opponents. What would you be testing? Uh, that is the Roman Games, really, isn't it? That's where it's all heading back to then. And I think the Olympics was an attempt to say that the Roman Games never happened, and we were trying to get back to the, the purer, more Corinthian, Aristotelian ethos of people being as good as they can. There has always been a bit of a trade-off between the amateur gentleman player... And then they bring in, certainly in cricket it happened, I think in rugby as well, and then they bring in some very extremely skillful working class lads who actually did the, who actually did the work. Who were prepared to knee someone in the bollocks. Yeah, right, but the gentleman would like, would, would put a, a veneer of respectability and, and so forth. And I've always, when I, when I see that, I often think of the podcast, Me and You, because I, I'm like the gentleman player and you're like the sort of... Is that what you think? Yeah. yeah. I can see how you'd come to that conclusion. <laughs> not, I think he was called... Notwithstanding, it was the gentleman that started all the wars, really, weren't they? Well, it was Tommy getting front boys when there's bullets in the wind. Absolutely. Yeah. You started the wars, basically, we finished them. Yeah. But I think um, um, a Special Olympics, but for those... I'm... I'm, I'm mm, oof, I have real trouble with the Special Olympics. And... and the, cat the difficulties of categorisation now are beginning to show the fault lines that run through it, where people are ha they're having to be classified on how disabled they are, because what you're having one guy who's 
maybe, you know, got one kind of disability running against another with a different sort of disability, and, it's, they, and their disabilities now have to be rated so they don't get into an unfair race. There's one that they basically say he's not really disabled, and yet he's just taking advantage of the situation because... He's a psychopath. <laughs> That's his disability. It's a cheat. <laughs> the cheat's race. That'd be quite a good Cheating one. Olympics. Yeah. But I think um, the Special Olympics is great, actually. Why do you like it so much? I find it very hard to watch. I'll, 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 I'll say that. I find it really hard to watch. I come from a different period where, you know, disability was really hidden in my childhood. I never saw anyone disabled in my childhood. They were all hidden away. I guess they were, a lot of them were killed at birth. And a lot... Of, they were. My dad was disabled. Right. My dad had um, polio in his right arm, which meant that he had this kind of, like, withered arm. It was a bit like... A, his right arm was a bit like, if you imagine, like, you've got no muscle on it. But, but he could use it, but he couldn't use it for much. We used to call it his floppy arm. But my dad... What did he use it for? Well, he just used it for get, doing whatever he could, he could, like, steady himself with it. And he was a really good cyclist, my dad. And I'm not just saying that. He, they named a trophy after him called the... the Pete Fry Memorial Trophy after he died. He died on his bike. He didn't want any special favours, actually. He would, have, he would have looked down on the Special Olympics mm -hmm. because he used to ride against able-bodied people. He was mm -hmm. part of the Leeds Mercury Cycle Club. They were all able-bodied. And at, at the age of 43, he, he was in a race called the Tour of the Kingdom of Five. And he set out on this race, and I was one of the... Um, what did they used to call them? Stewards. And it just meant standing at some fucking godforsaken corner in the middle of nowhere waiting for this pack... Of cyclists Peloton. to come past, and then they'd go past, and then you'd have to stand there with your little flag, and then they'd come round in the car and pick you up and take you to the next one. And I remember this race; it was the Tour of the Kingdom of Fife. It was a two-day race against about 130 people, maybe 100 miles or so. Standing at the side of the road, and my dad suddenly appeared on his bike and went past. And as he did, he he used to like prop himself up on his bad arm, and he waved me with his good arm and went and then carried on. I was like, that's weird, I wonder if he's packed. Packed means he's packed in. And then, and then the pack went past about two minutes later. And, uh, and then my mum and my brother came past from a different road and said, where's your dad? Have you seen your dad? And I went, yeah, he's winning. And my mother just went, oh, for God's sake. And her and my brother were really keen and just drove off and left me there at the side of the road. And he won the fucking race. He won this race. And he was racing against this able-bodied gang of people whose average age was 23 and he was 43 so he was a veteran cyclist disabled and then the next year after that he was run over by a bus on his way to work but that's when they named this trophy after him called the Pete Fryer Memorial Trophy. Is it still in existence now? No because all the people that ran it were at the same age as him and they're all dead now Right. and the next generation didn't remember really. No, no and in fact the only Severely disabled friend that I've had, Quentin Crewe, the writer, he disapproved of the sort of disability... No, I was going to say the disability culture, but I don't mean that, but, you know, making special allowances for disabled people. He, he always wanted to be seen... Well, he was a writer which... which didn't really affect... His disability didn't really affect his ability to write. He had muscular dystrophy. 
Is that the one on muscular sclerosis? He had the one where he he his, he couldn't move his MS leg. MS makes you shake. No, he, he he didn't shake. No, he could just couldn't move his legs, but he could feel them. If you touched them, he could feel them. Right. So it was the muscle that had gone. Is that dystrophy? I think it must be dystrophy. Yeah. Correct. I mean, but if we're he, wrong, we're he, wrong. About he, that. he didn't like being corralled into uh, disabled charities and raising money for disabled people and all that. He felt that was counterproductive, mm -mm. and obviously. Uh, you know, that's a voice that is just never heard now. It's never heard now. But I think he was, he was determined to do it on his own terms and not have allowances made for him. I mean, he was in an era before wheelchair ramps, wasn't he? Well, that's he the really thing, was. you know. He crossed the Sahara Desert on a wheelchair. Did he? That is true, yeah, that's absolutely true. Fuck. And wrote a very good book about it. He and crossed most, the fucking Sahara oh, Desert. Yeah, in a wheelchair. Yeah. What's his name again? Quentin Crew. And oh. he would deliberately. Is know, he still going? There? You know what wheelchairs and sound are like. Yes, not, I do it's actually. Not, it's not ideal terrain. Yeah, we had one in Mexico terrain. once, and it was quite difficult to. Um, we were with a group of friends in Mexico, so we bought this wheelchair in a supermarket, and then we then we tried we worked tried to work out what we were doing. We decided to make a, a short movie, uh, which was called The Arrival, and it ended up being about Hitler. And Hitler had basically, you know, this is the sketch of our movie, he'd been, he, he was actually living in Mexico and it was all about these people coming for an audience with him and he'd been kept alive using all these weird drugs and everything. And so it was all about these people at this dinner party the night before waiting to meet the Fuhrer the next day. The, 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 the punchline of the movie was you saw him in the sunset with this Alsatian dog next to him. We, we got an Alsatian dog from somewhere. And then the camera zoomed in and the nurse was standing behind him and you just saw the movement behind this cloth that was over him and this pig's trotter came out and tapped on the side of the wheelchair like that and then that was the end. But we, we had to push the Did wheelchair... Did you get wide distribution for this movie? ..across the beach. No, we didn't get any distribution. It was terrible, but it was fun. It was just like, you know, we were on a long holiday and we had to... Anyway, we digress. Yeah, well, you know, holiday is a, is a difficult term to apply to my life because it, it presupposes the idea that there's some period in which, you know, you, you're, you're working. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I, you know... But I, I think that I work as hard getting as on a man. plane with a lot of people... <laughs> getting on a plane with a lot of people who are all... They've worked really hard, they've saved up, you know, it's their holiday for two weeks. There's a real buzz on the plane and they're all going off on holiday. That's good. I quite like that. I remember I like days. to be... I've often lived in tourist towns. Glastonbury's a tourist town. Clangochland was a tourist town. And when you go down those high streets, which I know really well, you know, good percentage of the people are on holiday. It's really nice. And they're like, look around the place and they're seeing things with fresh eyes and they're really enjoying the, the, the clean air or the river yeah. or the vibe in Glastonbury. And things that I would probably get quite bored of. Just like Leeds, there really, all the time. Yeah. Do you think Leeds has ever had a tourist? Oh, yeah, loads of tourists go to Leeds. Oh, come we were twinned, hold on. We were twinned with Dortmund. <laughs> People from Dortmund used to come all the time. <laughs> and they were amazed by what Leeds had to offer. It's boutiques, it's nightlife. It's public houses, it's oh, no. fashion. When are you talking about? This is like in the 70s and 80s. No one went and to Leeds. Leeds was a hot tourist destination. It was just really happening in Leeds then. Disco had kicked in. Would you ever go to Las Vegas? Not to get married, but I like casinos. 
I'm a shit gambler, but I really do like. I have to say, I, I, a very funny thing happened the other night. I was, I, I was, I was with you in London, and you probably won't remember this. We wandered out onto the streets of Soho to try and get a drink, and we were shocked actually that at three we were finding it quite difficult. To 3 a.m. 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Yeah. We were finding it quite difficult, there which I thought was a nowhere. sorry indictment of Soho. There was nowhere. Re yeah, and, and between the two of us, there were a couple of other people, I thought, well, surely this is a crowd of week who are going to know which door to go through to get a drink. And then you turned and said, I know where we can get a drink, the casino. And your eyes slightly blazed. And I saw your girlfriend go, no, no. <laughs> No, we're <laughs> not going, going to the casino. casino. It, was, it was with such urgency. It no, really it was, it was absolutely, it was <laughs> not negotiable. It really amused me. She was shortly to come on her lips was, you know what happened last time. <laughs> well, I think she's terrified of what might happen. I think it's it was so worse. funny, I, I really laughed. She's even more no, scared. No, we're not I going to the casino. That I doubt somewhat. Well, imagine, it, it has happened. Sorry, you're not going to convince me that, uh, that punters win. You know. Last time I was in there, in the casino, and I won, I was in there with a friend of mine called Keith, um, who was a bit of a gambler in his day, but he's knocked all that on the head now. But he, we were really drunk that night, and he said, let's go to this casino. I went, well, let's go to the Hippodrome. And he went, no, it's fucking horrible. Let's go to a shithole in Leicester Square. And he dragged me into this shit-looking place with really low ceilings, and it was full of, like, really desperate-looking people. And we shambled up to this... It was really quite smelly in there, and the carpet was sticky underfoot. And we, and he just said, and I said, "What are we doing, Keith?" And he said, "Just follow me. Just follow my betting." And we, I got about two hundred quid's worth of chips, and I thought, "I really can't afford this." And he'd got five hundred quid's worth, and he just started throwing chips onto the board. He was going, and he was laughing maniacally and putting these chips everywhere. And I was following him, and we just started winning and winning. And they kept changing the croupier, and he was going, yeah, change the fucking croupier. You think that's going to stop us? We're going to win. We're going to win. And all these people started throwing loads of money down, and everybody was winning. And it went on for about half an hour. And then he said, right, let's get out of here. And we put, took all the chips and thing, and I'd won about 300 quid. And, and I went, oh, that's amazing. I've got... And he went, look in your pockets. And I looked in my pockets, and there were all these chips in my pockets. And he'd been taking the chips off the table and putting them in my pockets. So I had another 100 quid's worth of chips in my pocket. But that's not me, because I lose. That's not gambling. I, I lose when I go in the casino. Actually, the thing we know about uh, gamblers, people who have a gambling problem, is that they really get high on losing as well. Do they? Because they get into that lovely thing of, oh, look, it's not fair, poor me, everybody hates me, even God's against me, the wheel's against me. Do you speak from experience? Yeah, I do, to some extent, although gambling is never my thing, never my thing, never, never, never. But you understand that, like, what the... It's gone wrong. It's not fair. The will to poverty. Yeah, sabotage. Self-sabotage. Mm. I love a bit of self-sabotage. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done it for a while, but I used to really like it. Especially when things are going well, I always think this is not... I don't, I'm not enjoying this. Too many people are being nice to me. I'm just going to fucking get arsehole and just say what I think. And you just... Ruin it. Ruin it. Totally <laughs> fucking ruin it. I've done it loads of times. Mm. And everyone goes, God, he's a fucking idiot. Don't invite him again. I'm over it now, though, everybody. If you listen to this, please invite Do me. Do invite him around, yeah. Invite me around to dinner parties. <laughs> all is... It's all finished now, and I hope all is forgiven. I never, you know, I've never been that clubbable, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, I know that I've sabotaged myself. 
It's like I remember years ago being at this like dinner. It's something I still think about with shame to this day. And everyone was like, "Come on, e come on let's let's revel in this." Come eating on, nut no loaf. filtering. Okay, you cannot filter eating it. nut loaf. Everybody was virtue signalling and being so right on to the letter, and I just I started vice signalling like crazy. And I started using really objectionable language. And I was going, what's wrong with that? It's only a word, you know? And I, I ended up standing up and doing a Nazi salute and just, like, shouting at the top of my voice. And and they threw me out into the street. A housing association? Yeah. Of co-op, housing co-op. Housing co-op. <laughs> and they threw me out into the street and I just had to hang my head in shame for it. And a few people said, look, it's all right, you were drunk. And it all and it got a bit out of hand. But I didn't do it because I was drunk. It was like that moment when, you know, what's his name? John Galliano totally lost it. Yes. And started using the N-word and talking about Jews. And yes. just went totally off the deep end. Yeah, and someone filmed him. And if someone filmed him doing it. And he was, ob he was obnoxious and objectionable. But it's because of that feeling of being imprisoned. I know why people do things like that. They just kick off and they try and say the most offensive things possible. Just because they're sick of everyone being nice all the time. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I do know what I mean. So you think probably he didn't really mean it at all. All he was doing was just playing a game. Not even playing a game, well, just reacting. Well, like you play a game if you play if you if you play a part on the stage, for instance, where you have a an objectionable character. No one goes, that's not right. They just go that he's just playing a game. That's his part that he's playing. But there is some pretty insidious shit around at the minute about all that. I keep noticing this in this. Whole Illuminatus oh, God, no. conspiracy theory thing where people oh, are st oh. they always go about the Rothschilds and the Jews controlling everything and they all like they link that in with Hitler and say that the Jews organised the Holocaust and all this fucking nasty shit. I mean it's some there's some really poisonous stuff going on. And the thing is if you're up your own arse and drunk all the time and you know, you think that you know that the reality you're involved in is complete bollocks, i.e. the fashion world. And you're doing a bit of like bedroom research at home when you're on your own. Maybe you start to believe that stuff after a while, and maybe that comes out. And that really is horrible and wrong. Because, you know, there is that definitely is going on at the minute. The rise of the right, all these fucking marches going on. I mean, people are deliberately stirring that stuff up. So you can't excuse people behaving like that. But you can't but you can understand them. Boys will be boys. <laughs> Girls never behave like that, do they? Not really. No, not as a rule. No. The funny thing is, is that when women do get into positions of political power, nothing madly seems to change, and I never quite work that out. What about Angela Merkel? Yeah, maybe that's an exception to that rule. Do you think there's something... Uh, Feminine about Angela Merkel's politics. I thought you were going to say, you think there's something feminine about Angela Merkel? No, I do not mean that. All right. About her just, politics. Just making sure you, you know. I mean, a woman. She's a woman, you know. She's a lovely woman. And I never see hey, her. She's and lovely. I, and I never see her she's husband. Dead. I never see her husband. Has she got a husband? She's got a husband. No, and she and hasn't. I, she's got a husband here. She's on record as saying kids are repulsive and she doesn't want any. I doubt that very much. She, she said that. Kids make her feel a bit queasy, and she doesn't mind them, but don't bring them near her. I'll let that pass. Maybe that was somebody else who said Eva that. Eva Braun. <laughs> <laughs> Guy. You know, when I meet Germans abroad... Here we go. <laughs> no, I feel like... But we've all, we're already on record as to what happened the last time you met Germans abroad. <laughs> I, I, well, we'll draw a veil over that. Yeah. But I remember being with someone in Goa,
and someone was giving them a little bit of a hard time. And I remember thinking, I said to them, it's really tough for you people because you've done your goddamn best since the war. You really have. You have done your... You have really behaved so well. You got down, put your, you know, your, your, your shoulder to the wheel. You've worked, you've worked really hard. <laughs> them aside. And you've got an exemplary democracy and you've behaved so well. And yet still, you know, it sticks. What sticks? You know, the war. The war? The war. Do you feel sorry for the Germans, then? I do when I meet some nice ones on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's going... Everyone, behind their back, everyone's, like, doing that thing with their forehead and their fingers oh, exactly, and their nose. Exactly. Even and, and doing the high like, kicks and everything. And they're so meek, and they so don't want to cause controversy, and they so want to... Well, actually, until... Meantime, back at base. Meanwhile, in Bavaria. <laughs> <laughs> Major fascist riots going on. But, um... Oh, did you hear that? that Poor things. That God, were... I wonder what would have happened if, if we had lost the war. Well, actually, no, let's not go there. We know what would have happened if we'd lost the, the EU war. The EU would have looked a bit different, that's for certain. I wouldn't, I wouldn't look any different. I wouldn't look any different. Well, you may have. We probably we may have been speaking German. You would I, I doubt it somewhat. You would just look at... I doubt it. I'm sure I'd be speaking German. Why would you be speaking German, guys? Because I would obviously go in with them. Oh. I've been their mate. Uh. Yeah, absolutely. I always have a grudging respect for the Vichy French government, oh. who decided, oh, OK, let's throw in the towel and make and hope they win the war. <laughs> we are really Oh, fucked. no, they are losing. Oh, no. <laughs> what a losing. terrible decision. Oh, shit. <laughs> Is it too late? We changed sides, and from the winning side to the losing side. Mm. Really bad judgment there by the French. Mm. Really bad judgment. It must have been quite exciting when it all collapsed, though. And there's all those, like, sexy French resistance people running around. You know, young men with beards and girls in shorts with schmeisers. Yeah. And everybody, and they were just, like, you know, overrunning the place, blowing everybody up. Have you ever been in a revolutionary situation, Guy? In Never. Club? Never. And, I'd, and I'd, I'd, I'd been in a hurricane, and I, th and I thought at the time, this is, this is what it must be like being in a revolutionary situation where everything is turned upside down. In that case, literally, rather than politically... But I've never been. That was in Jamaica. Huh? Yeah, I've been in. I've been in. No, I've never been in a real. Your house got completely blown away, didn't it? Yeah, which would what would happen in a in a revolutionary situation, you know? But I've never been in that, and I would quite like to be. In fact, when they were, were at 1989, when the, when uh, the, uh, the the uh, Soviet Union was collapsing, and there were a lot of those fairly dangerous rioter situations in the Eastern European capitals. Do you remember where, mm. where they were like Nikolaj Ceausescu? People like that mm. were, were being overthrown. I had a strong urge to go there and, and to watch it going on, but I didn't typically get off the sofa. <laughs> we were there in 89. We left <coughs> just before it all happened. What, what, what do you mean there? We were there. I was on tour with a band, and I wrote a song about it when I came back called King for a Day, but it was all about... That was what was happening. Did it really the tour? Literally. No, no, we just came back, and it was like... Every, there was a really strange atmosphere, and then literally it all kicked off when we came back, and the wall came down and everything, and we were... Yeah, the, the chain of command breaking down. Yeah. 
the only time I've ever seen anything like that is at the end of the Glastonbury Festival. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, like, on day three, sun, on, Sunday afternoon, the they, they can't keep the security guys off the drugs anymore. <laughs> 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 and, and you see where there were, like, checkpoints and, and, you know, people having their passes checked and all that to get in, you just saw these sort of four empty, those kind of canvas chairs... ..and a smouldering fire. Oh, and, like, and some high-vis jackets just chucked in the edge. That's quite good. The Fronts, uh, the fronts like collapsed, yeah. and the back has <laughs> collapsed as well. I, I, the, do, you, do you recycle conscientiously? God, it's you hypocrite. Yes, I do. You hypocrite. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do recycle because we have the facilities where I now live to recycle. But where, when, when I was living in, a, in an industrial estate in my studio, there were no such facilities. And this is the irony, you know, when you're in these big, huge fucking places that produce vast amounts of waste, there are no serious recycling facilities. There are big skips for paper. But everything else is just like, oh, it's just thrown into these fucking huge bins. And so, but all these homes are doing it on this pathetic scale, really, by by comparison. Yeah, we feel so. We feel but it. We've is, been we, calm, yeah, really. yeah, yeah. My friend made uh, some films about rubbish, and his it was great. His film, his film was was about garbage. What was it called? I think it was called Rubbish. <laughs> and he had a lot of trouble making. But he went and not he, garbage. And, and he filmed in Cairo, in New York, in Rome, and in London about how people got rid of rubbish and, and how people got rid of... But he... And I, you get another example of that. After the festival, there's a lot of stuff left behind on the, on the, on the site at Glastonbury. And one of the, one of the, one of the greatest the things drugs. that I, I used to love... Yeah, yeah, they... they ever, you, when I walk around with my mates after the, on, the, on the Monday, my mate Pete... And I'd be walking on, I'd be chattering away to him, and he'd go, eyes down, eyes down, eyes down. And I'd go, what do you mean? He goes, yeah. when you're walking on the site on a Monday, you always have your eyes down. Guy, guy. You always have your eyes down. Do you know down. what you need? You need a eyes drug down. dog. <laughs> Truffle hound. Fucking drug Cocaine dog. Cocaine hound. You know, like those drug dogs the, the police have. Oh, right. Can't you get one? You're retired, yeah, retired drug dog. Fucking get a retired <laughs> drug dog. Can you imagine the booty you would fucking uproot? It'd be fucking quids in, mate, I tell you. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. What do they do with them when they retire them from Terminal 3? Gotta get one. Yeah. Wanted. He goes into... You know, actually... Uh, exactly. He's left the force. <laughs> he's <done> his <laughs> private contractor. <laughs> and he's, like, got a lovely kennel. Uh, no, he all does all right. He does all We right. take him. <laughs> he yeah, yeah, he's, he's, left, he's still got contacts in the force. a few times a year. <laughs> take him down to Boomtown. Exactly, to yeah. We could, yeah, yeah. You know, just like... Then it's quite a good life, I work, yeah, you know. Yeah. Six or seven days well, a year. Well, actually, we both retired. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, so there's a huge amount... I heard that's why Michael Evis can't put his cows out. It definitely is. Because well, they, eat, they eat all the drugs and then they would die. No, it's actually the tent pegs and the lighters and the scissors and all the, all the bits of metal that are quite deep in the... Uh, Cow boots. Impressive machine. It was, it was towed behind a tractor and it was about 12 foot wide and it was a huge electromagnet. And I used to go and have a look at it when they'd and they'd wait for some rain to fall so the the earth was a bit uh, soft and they'd run it over and it would <laughs> picking up all the picking up all the uh, all, all the metal. Didn't the hippies go mental about that because they'd, they'd be demagnetizing the ley lines? 
Anyway, just to go back to that. So there's a lot of rubbish left over. And one of the, uh, w w w one of the things that, that most amazed me was the, particularly if it had been a wet year, people just, on a Sunday night, everyone just abandons ship and they just, like, make their way to the car and they're throwing everything they don't need. Yeah. And if it's been wet on Friday and Saturday and it's dry on Sunday, then everyone just gets rid of their Wellington boots because they've, like, got sort of seven kilos of mud stuck to the bottom. And they can't get it off. And they can't get it and they just chuck them. And there, and there was this huge pyramid. I mean, it must have been uh, about probably about 10, 12 feet high of Wellington boots. I could stand there and you'd go, OK, there's the left one, because it's, you know, the way they're quite old pattern ones. <laughs> and you'd start, you'd start trying to find a... Uh, the other one. You'd try, try, try and find well, the, the other one. And in fact, if you go into, my, if you go into my, my, my boot room over there, none of them are pairs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've got the same size, but if you look closely they, at them, you realise actually... They're a bit mismatched, uh, Exactly, yeah. they're mismatched, yeah. And there's this... And, and I thought that's the problem about recycling, is that... Getting it to the point where it's worth something, where it's usable again, is so tricky. Because you could say to someone, right, OK, go through that lot and sort them into pairs, because they're basically... There, there isn't an odd one in there. No-one throws one boot off. They are all there. Yeah, that's true. They're all there. They but just the sort, odd, one-legged person. Sort, you know, exactly. Sort, sort that lot out. And it's just like, oh, no, it's impossible. And in a very sweet, hippie way, a jeweller came along from Glastonbury. A jeweller? A jeweller, who said, I can make jewellery out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and they made really, so well-intended, kind of bangles and necklaces. Cut out of wellies. Cut out of And obviously, no-one was in a million years was ever going to wear one or look at that. And, and this whole beautiful but fatally flawed project was funded and organised where these boots were recycled as jewellery, but it was an utterly futile operation, the Wellington boot jewellery. And no-one's thought what we can do with the Wellington boot.